0: Good morning church. <laughs> Please turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 11 reading from the 27th verse to verse number 30. Matthew 11:27 to 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, Let us pray. Father, I ask that you will use this hour to minister to us through the preaching of your word. That we all may live here with the gift of your grace. And live a life that is holy and pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Medieval Greek philosophers philosophized on the idea of the highest good. They observed that human life was characterized by pain and suffering. But amid this suffering, there was still good that afforded man a sense of solace against the backdrop of pain. And of all the good things in the world, these philosophers thought that there must be a greater good that supersedes all other good, a good that is an end in itself, And at the same time, contains all other goods, and that they termed the summum bonum. And so these philosophers began seeking for answers. They wanted to know what the summum bonum of life is, the highest good a good which is an end in itself and contains every other good thing and this research was very necessary because they wanted to teach society what should be the fundamental concern of humanity when facing the realities of suffering in this life but theologians already had An answer to the question of the summum bonum, even before philosophers raised up the idea. I like the way Robert Jastrow, a leading NASA scientist, spoke on theologians and the quest of the unknown. This is what he says, in quotes. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason the story ends like a bad dream. He has killed the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. End of quote. Now for centuries, while... Philosophers scaled the mountain of ignorance in search of the summum bonum. Theologians already had the answer, and the answer was God. And as a theologian myself, I can speak without no fear of contradiction that God. In the midst of a life that is characterized by suffering and pain as a phenomenon, we can affirm that God is indeed the summum bonum of life. He is the highest good that man has ever need and will ever need in this life of suffering. And this is so because God is not only an end in himself, but every other good that man can possibly think of is found in God. And that is why great theologians in the past have spoken of God as the summum bonum. St. Augustine of Hippo, the great theologian, of Carthage, one said in his confessions, he said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What St. Augustine is saying here is that man was made for God, and until we find God, we can never be at peace. C.S. Lewis, the lay British theologian, also pointed to this fact when he stated, he said, he that has God and everything has no more than he that has God alone. But of all these theologians who have pointed at God as the summum bonum, I find the thoughts of Jonathan Edwards to be most succinct in articulating the idea of God as the summum bonum. This is what Jonathan Edwards once wrote. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper And is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of any. Or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, for the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but shattered, these are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. End of quote. Now, from the beginning of this year, we as a church, we have been exploring the theme of suffering as an inevitable reality in the Christian life. And so my fundamental presupposition this morning is that at least every serious member of this church is well aware that as Christians... It has been granted to us, not only to believe, but also to suffer. And the issue, therefore, this morning is not whether or not, as Christians, we will suffer, but where we should turn to when we suffer. Now, over the years, and even up to today, in the face of suffering, people, including Christians have been turning to men, have been turning to friends, have been turning to parents, have been turning to bosses, sponsors, and you can name it. And others have been turning to alcohol, and others have been turning to smoking, and others have been turning to sexual pleasures, and wanton pleasures, and worse still, some have been turning to prosperity, gospel theology. And all of this is in a be to escape the reality of suffering. But I set out this morning to preach that peace, joy and comfort is never found in the bottle of liquor. Joy is never found in the bosom of a prostitute. Peace is never gotten from the stick of cigarettes. The supposed peace or joy you can get from those things are only temporary. And as a matter of fact, they are bogus. True peace can only be found in God. And little wonder why David declared in Psalm 20, verse 7, he said, some trust in your chariots and some in your horses. But in times of suffering, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so this morning I set out to preach that the means through which we will find peace in God is never through Muhammad, as Muslims will teach. It's never through Buddha, as Buddhism will teach. But it is only through Jesus, the Son of the living God. And the only way in which we can get this peace that is found in God is To go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And the idea of going to Jesus should mean two things for you this morning, depending on who you are and where you are are at in your spiritual walk. First, for you who have been genuinely saved by grace, and you can call yourself a Christian, But in the face of suffering and trials, you act and speak as though you have no Christ in you. What this means is that you should realize that the one who has saved you from sin is also willing to carry your physical burdens. Take advantage of the Christ that you have in your lives. Don't carry that burden by yourself. He is willing. To stand by you. Don't speak like someone who has no Christ. Don't be a Christian who wakes up in the morning and prays our father. And live the rest of his life as though he was an orphan. You have a God who is willing to help you. If he showed love to you by saving you when you did not deserve. How much more will he not stand by you in your times of trial? And secondly, what this means for you is that if you are here and you have not yet given your life to Christ, and you have not yet been converted, what this means is that Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is your only option. And all you need to do is come to him. He will not only save you from sin and the impending wrath of God, but he will bear your physical burden too. And so whether you are a Christian, converted, or you are yet to be converted, you are well suited for this message. With the messianic call for you today, come unto me. And that is why I have assigned this message this title, which as in Latin we would say, it's in the ipsima verba of Christ. The exact words of Christ to those who are suffering. Come unto me. Come unto me. And so as I expose the meaning of Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 to 30, my goal would be to deconstruct four fundamental truths from this text. First, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to define the audience in this text so that you can clearly see how this can be applicable to you as a 21st century audience in Baltimore City. And second, what I'm going to do in a be to do justice in my text is that I will point out the theological relevance of the internal evidence that justifies this call. Uh, That sounds high. Let me take it over again. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to show you the theological relevance of the justification of this call. So this call has a justification that can be theologically explained. And third, I will help you understand the promise in this call. And fourth, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to show you how, according to the text... This promise will be fulfilled. Then I will wrap up as soon as I possibly can. Then get out of your way. Talking about the audience of our text, who is Jesus talking to? Internal evidence points clearly to those who are weak and are heavy laden, or those who labor and are heavy But who are these people? It refers to the Jews. The Jews in general. Who were under the legalistic oppressive demands of the law. As imposed on them by the scribes and by the Pharisees. So this legalistic impositions of the law was a burden to the people. And so Jesus comes in and says... I am the fulfillment of the law. If you come to me, you will find rest from the burden that the law puts on you. But this makes us different from that audience because we are, not, we are not no longer under the law, but we are under grace. So how can we situate ourselves as a 21st century recipient of this same messianic call? Well, I think, I believe that Jesus was concerned about the state of the people and which was caused by the law. What was the state of the people? They were weary, they were heavy laden, you know what, they were suffering. So Jesus was concerned of the fact that they were suffering. Now the point I want to make here is that Irrespective of the reason for your suffering, the very fact that you are suffering, Jesus offers himself as the way forward for you. So the clarion call to come is for anyone who is suffering. For those in the first century era, they were suffering because they were under the law. But we may not be under the law today, but we are also suffering for different reasons. We are suffering for financial reasons. We are suffering for emotional reasons. We are suffering for societal reasons. Whatever be the reason, as far as you are suffering, in whatever form of suffering, then you are well suited as an audience for this call. And it is, come unto me. But if it be true that Jesus is speaking to us today based on our current situation, what is the confidence that we have To really go to God. You might say to me, Yeah, Greg, I understand um, that Jesus is calling and I understand, but but you know, I'm tired of, of looking for solution to my problem. I have just decided to decide or to know that I will never get out of it. And I've gone to hospitals and they failed me. I've gone to all kinds of solutions. What is, the justific- what is the guarantee that I have that if I come, take my burden to Jesus, as you say, I will receive solutions to my problem? So, my response to that is, there is a justification for the call. Jesus does not just say, come to me. He gives valid reasons that, that compels you to come to him. And that is seen in verse 27. The first reason why you should come to Jesus is because all things have been handed over to him. He has authority over all things. Authority over your your marriage that is crashing. Authority over your family that is scattering. Authority over your career situation. Authority over your health situation. Whatever kind of suffering you are going through, Jesus has authority over it. And so if you go to Jesus, you are actually going to the authority over your problems. That's why you should go to Jesus. The second internal reason why you should go to Jesus is because he says here in verse 27, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and whoever the Son chooses to reveal to the Father. Now, what this means is that Jesus is saying that I have a wonderful, tight relationship with the Father, and because all authority is handed over to me, I have the powers to choose whoever I want to introduce to the Father too. So if you come to me, I will choose you, I will take you in my arms and then introduce you to the Father. Why is it so important that he mentions this as a justification for coming? Why is going to the Father an important factor? The reason why it's an important factor is because even Jesus believes that God is the summum bonum. God is an end in itself. So when Jesus came on earth, he never presented himself as an end. He presented himself as a means To an end, he projected the Father as the destination for humanity. And so he believes that it is in the presence of God where everything that we need, we will get. And all he can do is take us through his elective grace and connect us to the Father. So it is in the presence of God where you will find the peace and the rest that you're looking for. And that is why David declared, when they told him, let us go into the house of the Lord, he said, I was glad. Why? Because he knows that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there is a never-ending pleasure. Friends, there is some level of joy you get when you drive a brand new BMW or a brand new Mercedes. There is a level of joy you have when you spend the Sunday with your mother, celebrating Mother's Day. But the joy that is in the presence of God is transcendent. It cannot be defined. Every other thing on earth falls under the law of diminishing return. The law of diminishing return said the more you consume, the less you desire. You know, some of us, we have our mothers here, but we just want them to be here for a few days and go back. Because when they stay too long, then it becomes something else. Because everything, even the love of the mother, the love of friends, is affected by the law of diminishing return. But, but the fear... The joy that we get in the presence of God is not affected by the law of diminishing return. Such that the more you are in the presence of God, the more you want to be in the presence of God. And Jesus says, I am the only one that has access to that place. And you cannot get there through Muhammad or through Buddha or through any kind of means. If you come to me, I have the powers to connect you to the summum." bonum of life. Then it will be well with you. So two justification why you must go but to Jesus and nothing else. But then what does Jesus really promises if we go to him? In order for us to hold God accountable to his word we must first of all understand what he has promised. One of the reasons why some people become annoyed with God and leave the faith is because they were expecting God to fulfill the promise he never made. So so you cannot think of God disappointing you if you don't even understand what God has promised. So what does Jesus promise? What does he exactly promise to do to us when we come to him? The text clearly states, he says in verse 28, I will give you rest. Now take note here that Jesus did not say, when you come to me, those who are in need of money, I will give you money. Now Jesus didn't say that those who are sick, when you come to me, I will heal you. Jesus didn't say that those who are trusting, who are looking for husbands or wives. When you come to me, I'm going to give you one tall, you know, handsome, you know, rich, educated young man. He didn't make no such promises. All what he said was, come to me and I will give you rest. But now, the question is, how is this rest going to come? That is what I want you to pay very close attention to. How does Jesus promise to give us rest? Now prosperity gospel theology teaches that when you come to Jesus with your problem, the way that Jesus will give you rest is by giving you the things that you need and when you have them, then you have rest. So if you were suffering because you had no money, when you start serving God and start giving your tithes and start sowing the seed to a man of God, then God is going to give you more money and you will find rest. Or if you were sick, God is going to heal you and you'll find rest. Now, what I want to explain here is that rest is not found in the things that we can get in this world. So the text points to us where and how this rest is going to come? Now, in verse how, in verse twenty-eight or uh, verse twenty-nine, he states here clearly: How is this rest going to come? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Then you will find rest for your soul. So, two things we are going to do: two verbs that directly connects. the suffering masses the verb to take and the verb to learn so the key to understanding how we will find rest in our souls in the face of the vicissitudes or the troubles in life is to take from Jesus and to learn from him now what are we supposed to take from Jesus And what are we supposed to learn from Jesus? That is the key to finding rest. The text clearly points, take my yoke, my burden. We need to understand then what Jesus means by burden. But that is very ironical because we come to Jesus in search of help. We have our own burden is weighing us down. And instead of Jesus just making some magical words and helping us, he's actually asking us to carry his own burden. That's that's, that's contradictory. Sometimes we don't understand God. You know, why would you be giving me more burden when I already have enough for myself? You know, sometimes the ways of God we don't understand, but it is in obeying it that we see progress. Jesus goes to a blind man who is blind. Perhaps he was blind because you know, um, dust entered his eyes. The desert dust entered his eyes and so he he got blind. We don't know why he got blind but his eyes were not good. And what he needs is that he needs these eyes to be healed. Instead of Jesus looking for clean water or something nice to, you know, fix the eye, he takes mud and puts in his eyes. You know, we don't understand that. But the ways of God are different. Jesus sees that uh, people are hungry and they need food. And he's just give them food. He says, what do you have? Give me the food that you have. But we don't have food. Why are you asking us food? How can you go to Jesus with your burden and he's telling you, take mine. Now we live in a life where we want to be as stress free as possible. We don't want to carry anybody's burden at all because we believe that ours is is heavy enough but Jesus is saying take my own burden on you so what does that mean first he has defined and qualified the nature of his burden which is different from ours ours is heavy and weighs us down and makes us weary but his is light so we know that it's some some kind of burden but whatever it is it's a burden The key to finding peace then is to really understand what Jesus means by this burden we need to take from him. Then we need to understand what we need to learn from him as we take this burden. That's when we will find peace and rest for our souls. So how do we do that? How do we find this truth which has so misled so many people? Um, Jones and Woodbridge in their book Health, Wealth, and Happiness have this to say about prosperity gospel theology. They say, a main attraction of prosperity theology is its message concerning the avoidance or the alleviation of suffering. So one of the reasons why so many people flock into Pentecost uh, pro- uh, pro- uh, prosperity gospel preaching churches is because they tell them we know how to get you out of suffering in a way that you... you know, I, I, I saw the name of the church one day. I said, the name of the church is One Minute Miracle Center. You know, that's the name of the church. When you go there, in, in one minute, you will get your miracle, instant miracle. You know, you don't have to delay. You don't have... There are no procedures involved. You just get it. And, and so people, there is a natural desire for us to run away from suffering but the problem with prosperity gospel is not that they are trying to help people out of their suffering but it is the way in which they are helping out helping people out and what they teach in helping people out so jesus is saying here yeah you need to get out of your suffering but i'm going to tell you how you need to take my own burden upon you it's not about i don't see any sow a seed to a man of god I don't see any fast and pray for 10 days and for 40 days i don't see any of those things he says take my burden on you so what is this burden in order for us to understand this burden we need to ask ourselves the question what is jesus doing to learn from jesus we we need we we need, we, we learn from what he is doing and so to know what jesus is doing we look for the verbs that are connected to jesus in the text let me tell you the answers to the bible are found nowhere else but in the bible don't be a preacher who reads from the bible and preaches from the newspaper okay the answers are found right there in the word it is the bible that explains itself so if you have any questions ask the word and so here we look for the verbs that are connected to Jesus and then from there we'll know what Jesus is doing and what are the things that are his burden and then we'll know. So there are three verbs here that are connected to Jesus. In verse 27, the verb to know, he is knowing the father. And then at the latter part of verse 27, the verb to reveal, he is revealing um, the father. And then the last verb is the verb to give, he is giving us rest. Now, if we were in an exegesis class, I would delve more in, you know, expounding on these verbs. But, but what we're going to do is we're, we're going to camp on the verb to know. Because it is the verb, in the verb to know that we'll find out what Jesus' burden is and what we need to learn from him. Now, what Jesus is doing here is that Jesus is... Knowing the Father, that's, that's something, that's an action. And how is Jesus, know, now this knowing here, it has, a, it has an undertone of koinonia, fellowship. So there is some good fellowship, relationship that is going on between him and the Father. And there are key things that make this relationship cordial while Jesus, Jesus is on earth. And it is the fact that Jesus is gentle and lowly. So these virtues that emanate from Jesus as a man makes it easier for him to communicate with God because as man, he, Jesus is God. So he, but what he did is that he humbled himself, became gentle and lowly, so that even while he is in human form, he can still be in communication with the Father. And so... Jesus' major burden while he was on earth was not the slandering that was going on against him or the plot to kill him. That that was not Jesus' problem. Jesus' major concern as he moved around, he wanted to be in connection with his father. He wanted to be in relationship with his father. He wanted to be in knowledge with his father. That was his primary concern. And the only time when Jesus really, really, really wept and cried on earth was the time when the Father left him on the cross. And he cried out and said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That was the height of pain. It was not the nails that were nailed on his hands or the the beatings that he received that pained Jesus. His key pain was the fact that the Father left him. So while he was on earth, his burden was to ensure that he maintains a fervent and faithful relationship with the Father by acting in humility and in gentility. So Jesus is saying that if you need to find rest from your soul, I'm going to introduce you to the burden that I have, which is the burden to know God. And you need to learn from me how to be in fellowship with the Father. You need to learn humility from me. You need to learn gentility from me. No matter who you are, you may be a doctor of theology, but you will learn from me how to be humble when you are talking to God. You may be a grandmother with many children who are successful. When you learn from me, you will learn how to be humble when you are talking to God. So that is what Jesus is talking about. We will learn from him how to be humble while we make the burden of having God, of the Father, as our burden. Then, Jesus says, you will find rest for yourself. So this rest is not going to come through some man of God laying hands on you and prophesying on your life and tell you how same time next year you will no longer have any problem. This rest is going to come by taking the burden of knowing God. Such that when you wake up in the morning, what will be your primary concern will not be oh what am I going to eat today? I have no money. Oh, how am I going to send my children to school? Oh, how am I going to pay my mortgage? But your, your burden will be all oh, that I may know him. That I may grow in my knowledge of Him. Oh, as the deer pants for cool water, so does my soul long for God. How can I grow in my knowledge of God? That becomes your burden. You want to read the Bible. You want to come for prayer meetings. You want to come for Bible study. You want to go for house community because there is a longing for God. The more you long for Him, the more you enjoy Him, the more you want Him because Knowing God knows no diminishing return. That becomes your burden. And when that becomes your burden, what you will be doing is that you will be delighting in the Lord. What the Bible says about those who delight in the Lord, it says when you delight in the Lord, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart. Now when you focus on God as your burden to grow with him, to know him, what is going to happen is that you will be seeking first the kingdom of God. And what the Bible says about seeking first the kingdom of God is that when you do, then every other thing shall be added unto you. God knows that you need a man in your life. God knows that you need a woman in your life. God knows that you need a job. God knows that you need to pay your bills. God knows that you need to sponsor your children. God knows that you need to provide food. But he says that when you make it your burden to know me through learning from Jesus by the reading of the word of God, let me worry about these things. Let your concern be to know God. And let me tell you, friends, when you delight yourself in the Lord, you will start having the mind of Christ. When you have the mind of Christ, your need will no longer be how to drive the best BMW in town. Your need will no longer be how to live in the most expensive mansion in Baltimore. Your need will no longer be how to, 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 to do the most expensive and elaborate wedding in town. Your need will be how to grow in holiness, how to grow in righteousness, how to be a faithful member in the church. Because when you, when you have the mind of Christ, you will be delighted in the things that Christ takes delight in. And I tell you, Christ doesn't delight in all the material things in the world. So, so, so it's, it's a contradiction for you to have Christ and delight in Christ, but have desires that are contrary to the desires of Christ. And you will find rest for your soul. This rest will come then. When, 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 so what is going to happen is that when you, get, you, you become busy knowing God, and growing in your relationship with God, before you know it, you will see how God is going to be meeting your needs. You will see how those things that, that matter to you, God will be meeting them one at a time. That is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God means that He knows what we need and He will provide. What does He say? He said, we shouldn't worry about anything. Let's be like the, the, the flowers in the field. They don't worry about how they are clothed, but God takes care of them. Let your worry only be the creator. How to grow in your fellowship with God. That is how you will find rest for your soul. And so what Jesus is saying is that in the midst of pain and suffering, you will find rest in your soul. He does not promise that when you have cancer, he is going to take away the cancer. What he promises is that in cancer, you can still enjoy his rest. What he promises is that if, if, if you don't have a job, it is not like tomorrow you're going to get a job. What it means is that even in your unemployment, you can still enjoy God's rest in that. What he promises is that even if you are still going through the suffering of singlehood, even at that, what is going to happen is that he will give you rest in that suffering. So our theology is different from prosperity gospel theology. We don't believe that you find rest by getting the things that you need. We believe that you find rest by getting God in your need. And so the key, my dear friends, is to come to him. That is the only way in which we can really get this rest that we need. I have a good news for someone here this morning. You can enjoy rest. You've been toiling on your own all this while. You've been suffering and been looking for ways to get out of it. You can enjoy rest. The fires may be there everywhere around you, but they will not consume you. You may walk through the waters, but you will not be drowned by it when you are enjoying God's rest. So wrapping this up, I'm saying that since we know that no matter who we are or what we are, we will definitely suffer in different ways and at different times, let us desist from the habit of looking for hope and peace in the things that are passing away. Such as drinking. Such as smoking. Such as running after human beings. Let us go only to Jesus. Because he saved us. So if he saved us from sin, he will, he's definitely concerned enough to stand with us in this time of need. But why should you go to Jesus only? Because he is calling you. He has been calling you ever since that marriage started cracking. He has been calling you ever since that wife turned and became a knife to you. He has been calling when that man transitioned from that loving person to a, made you a punching bag at home. He has been calling you ever since. He has been calling you when things started falling apart in your career. He has been calling for you. So, go to him. That's all you need to do. But should you just go to him because he's calling you? No. There is valid reason that should compel you to go to him and to him alone. One, because he has authority over all things, including authority over your situation. Number two, because he has connection to the presence of the Father which you need to be there in order for you to find rest. And number three, because he has promised that he will help everyone who comes to him, including you. So if you go to him, he will not fail his promise because he is not a man that he would lie and he's not a son of man that he would change his mind. So go to him. In 1846 a hymn writer in the person of Honario Bona penned down this messianic call in the lyrics of his famous song which reached us. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast I came to Jesus as I was so weary worn and sad I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad even as we suffer as Christians I encourage you to remain encouraged That you can find in Christ a resting place. And he will make you glad. And all what he's saying to you this morning is come unto me. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to accept his call or reject it? Let us pray. Father, speak to every one of us. Let this message have a bearing in our hearts. To those of us who have been saved by grace, let this remind us that you are also willing to carry our burden. To those under my sound who are yet to be converted, let this message remind them and give them a firm pricking in their heart That they may turn to Jesus and be saved. Let your word work wonders in our hearts this morning as we trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.